Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa as he preaches from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, in the sixth part of a sermon series called Character Under Construction, with this message from July 7th titled Godliness, Living Life in God's Presence. I trust you have your Bibles with you this morning. I'm going to ask you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. You and I know that the sun is a huge mass of burning fuel with tremendous heat. Though it is 150 million kilometers from Earth, yet we clearly see its light and we feel its warmth. The moon, on the other hand, is a non-burning rock. It produces no light. It is only 384,400 kilometers from the earth. But how is it then that the moon gives light to the earth? Well, it reflects the light of the sun. And in a similar way, our lives are to reflect the likeness of the sun. Our lives are to reflect the likeness of Jesus. We're to become more like Christ in our thoughts, in our conduct, in our habits, and in our attitudes. Currently, we are in a preaching series, which I've titled Character Under Construction, a series from 2 Peter chapter 1. And in this series, I have emphasized that although we are better than we once were, we are not yet what we ought to be. God is in the process of shaping and molding our lives so that it reflects the likeness of his son, Jesus. In order for our lives to reflect the holiness and the righteousness of Christ, our character needs to be transformed. Therefore, we can say that our character is under construction. The apostle Peter himself had his character go through reconstruction. During his first years under Christ's personal leadership and teaching, Peter often bulldozed his way around like the proverbial bull in a china shop. And whatever he thought was right or should be done, that's what he did with little regard for the consequences. Peter was by far the most outspoken of the 12 apostles, always saying whatever was on his mind. However, quite often he seemed to contradict himself. And although a strong personality, his own wisdom, strength, and self-confidence often hindered him and caused him to make mistakes. However, this man who was so impulsive and immature grew into a great leader of the church. The Peter we read about in the four gospels became the Peter we read about in the book of Acts and in the two epistles that he wrote. It took time and effort, but God changed his life. If Peter is an example of how one's character can be changed to reflect the likeness and the glory of Jesus, we ought to pay attention to what he says about character transformation. But not only should we pay attention to what he has to say, we must put into practice that which he calls us to do. And what is it that he calls us to do? Well, listen, as I read second Peter chapter one, verses five to eight, Peter says, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Peter is telling us in these verses 
that although the Christian life begins with trusting Jesus for salvation, it doesn't end there. The Christian life involves much more than that initial step of faith. Therefore, he urges us to supplement our faith or to add to our faith these seven qualities. And all these qualities are necessary and must work together in harmony in order for our lives to display the transforming grace of Jesus. Have you ever wondered why the Christian life seems so hard? Have you ever wondered why it is so easy to drift away from God and and so hard to grow in your relationship with him? So hard to have our character transformed? In his book, For the Love of God, Don Carson writes about spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, about Christian and character transformation. He says one of the most striking evidences of sinful human nature lies in the universal propensity for downward shift. The drift is invariably toward compromise, comfort, indiscipline, sliding disobedience and decay that advances sometimes at a crawl and sometimes at a gallop across generations. And he goes on to say that it takes thought and resolve and energy and effort to bring about reform. And Peter is saying the same thing. It's for this reason, he says, that we are to make every effort to supplement our faith with these Christ-like qualities. In other words, we're to give diligence to the development of our Christian character. We are to make an all-out effort to, uh, beca- uh, to grow in our character. Like a world-class athlete, we are to give every ounce of personal effort. Like a world-class athlete, we are to have a single-minded focus. And why must we make every effort? We do so because we know that we do not automatically drift toward Christ likeness. Apart from grace driven effort, we do not gravitate toward the qualities that Peter lists. We do not automatically gravitate toward virtue, toward knowledge, toward self-control, toward steadfastness, toward godliness, toward brotherly affection and love. Rather, as Don Carson says, we drift toward compromise. We drift toward disobedience. We drift toward superstition. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control. We slouch toward prayerlessness and we slide toward godlessness. When we drift, we always drift downward. If we go with the flow, we are not likely to be happy where we end up. And so if you don't like what your life has become, Ask God for the grace to make a new beginning. But before warned, drifting is easier, more convenient, and takes no effort. You just relax and go wherever the current takes you. Spiritual growth, character transformation, however, comes through grace-driven effort. As long as you keep drifting, nothing will ever change. All over the last several weeks, we have been making our way through the seven qualities Peter listed. And in so doing, you and I have been encouraged to make every effort to supplement our faith, to add to our faith, these qualities. And this morning we come to the quality of godliness. As I have done in previous Sundays, I'm going to give you a definition of godliness, ways in which this quality can be developed in our life. And then an example from scripture of an individual that displayed this virtue. What does Peter have in mind when he tells us to supplement our faith with godliness? 
as we consider that question, we must not confuse godliness with religiosity. As Tony Evans says, religion can give the impression of something related to God that's not real. You can look religious. You can wear religious clothes, use religious vocabulary, and even carry a religious book, the Bible. You can hang out with religious people, and yet you can have no power. Religion does not equate godliness. And so let me share with you some thoughts by various commentators regarding this quality of godliness. One commentator wrote, godliness comes from a Greek word, which means worship that is worthy of God. It was a term for authentic piety or true religion, the kind that was consistently lived, whether in the home, the church, or in the marketplace. In other words, it reflects an attitude of one's life to live with a sense of God's presence and a desire motivated by love to be pleasing to him in all things that we say, do, and think. Another said godliness refers to a very practical awareness of God in every aspect of life. It refers to an awe in the presence of God and the obedience that befits that reverence. It is the attitude which God gives. It's the attitude which gives God the place he ought to occupy in life and in thought and in devotion. William Barclay says godliness is one of the great and almost untranslatable Greek words. It describes reverence both towards God and man. It describes that attitude of mind, which respects man and honors God. And he goes on to say, it never forgets the reverence due to God. It never forgets the rights due to man. It never forgets the respect due to self. It describes a character of the man who never fails God, man, or himself. Godliness is a reverence of the man who never ceases to be aware that all life is lived in the presence of God. In other words, the godly person lives above the petty things of life, the passions and pressures that control the lives of other people. The godly man or woman seeks to do the will of God. And as they do, they seek the welfare of others, making the kind of decisions that are right and noble, not taking the easy path simply to avoid either pain or trial and doing what is right because it is right. And because it is the will of God. I think this helps us to understand why Peter lists his qualities where he does. He lists it after the, Qualities of virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness. These four virtues are essential to the cultivation of godliness in our lives. Reverend Charles Seat explains it in this way. He says, godliness is like a car engine. It provides a power that is needed to propel the car, but the engine will run smoothly only if its four cylinders are in good working order. Without virtue or moral excellence, there would be no desire to pursue godliness. Without knowledge, there would be no design for the pursuit of of godliness. And without self-control and steadfastness, there would be no discipline to pursue godliness. Godliness is taking God seriously. The heartbeat of the godly person is a desire to respect and reverence the things of God. 
It's a desire to live in the constant presence of God. It's turning to God for every need, habitually praying about everything and giving him thanks in every circumstance and situation. It's an attitude in which we practice a presence of God in the simple affairs of everyday living and continually conducting ourselves in joyful confidence that our Lord and our master is always present and is always watching over us. Godliness is taking God seriously. Jim Berg once made this observation. Many today are Christian, but alarmingly few are godly. And Charles Seat further stated, godliness is desperately lacking today. What God's kingdom needs today are men and women who are godly. I don't know if you would be in agreement with those comments, but I think if we were to be honest, we would have to say that there is some element of truth in those conclusions made by those two men. So then it leads us to ask the question, how then does one go about developing this quality in their life, this characteristic? And I think there are several things we can do to grow in godliness. First, regularly practice biblical spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines such as personal scripture reading, prayer, fasting, silence and solitude, and service to others. When pursued in a way that flows from our personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, the spiritual disciplines are means of grace that the Lord uses to grow us in godliness. The spiritual disciplines can be used to usher us into God's presence. In other words, as we engage in the spiritual disciplines, we have a greater sense of God's presence and a greater opportunity to deepen our fellowship and our relationship with him. They create within us a deeper longing, a deeper thirst for God. I think of what David expressed in Psalm 42. He wrote as a deer longs for streams of water. So I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. I say, when will I be able to go and be in God's presence? What could be more intense than a hunted deer's thirst for water? And the psalmist here expressed his longing for God with that analogy. He wanted to see the face of God entering into his fellowship and into his presence. Thomas Friedman popularized a fable in his book, The World is Flat, a fable about lions and gazelles. And the fable goes something like this. Every morning in Africa, a gazelle wakes up. It knows it must run faster than the fastest lion or it will be killed. Every morning, a lion wakes up. It knows it must outrun the slowest gazelle or it will starve to death. It doesn't matter whether you are a lion or a gazelle. When the sun comes up, you better be running. In the pursuit for godliness, it's not enough to simply wake up. We're called to run, to run toward God, to thirst for God. Godliness doesn't come by sitting passively, waiting for it to drop into our lap. As I said earlier, godliness, along with the other virtues Peter lists, requires hard work, enduring perseverance, and a continued effort. In a manner of speaking, you have to run for it with everything you got. 
Although the godly person is content in their relationship with God, they are never satisfied with their present experience. They always yearn for a deeper, more intimate relationship with their heavenly father. The well-known British pastor, Charles Spurgeon issued this warning. He said, if you are not seeking the Lord, the devil is seeking you. If you're not seeking the Lord, judgment is at your heels. And Jerry Bridges noted that godliness is an exercise or discipline that focuses on God. The spiritual disciplines set us in the direction of focusing upon God and seeking God. Second, we must work hard to worship joyfully. In the definition of godliness, we said it is a understanding of who God is and a heart that is directed toward him in worship. And so we work hard to worship joyfully. Now, this might sound a bit weird at first, worship as work. We're often used to speaking of worship experiences these days that as we worship, we just have this, in, this wonderful experience that we enter into. But worship is something that we are commanded to do. Therefore, if we're commanded to do it, it must involve effort on our part. The experience of God flows from our practice of worship. We're to worship the Lord personally as we live for his glory, but we're also commanded to gather with the body of Christ to worship the Lord corporately. Work hard then to keep worshiping the Lord yourself. Soak up the preaching of God's word. Sing joyfully to the Lord. Pray with the body of Christ to your king and give cheerfully and sacrificially to the advancement of his kingdom. Work hard to worship joyfully, but also take sin seriously. Seek God's forgiveness immediately when you give in to temptation. Root sin out of your life quickly rather than allowing it to take root in your life. We will never grow in godliness if we never take sin seriously. We're told that Beijing, China has such a major smog problem that during the day, it looks like night. The smog is so thick in the city that they put up big screens like those in New York, in Times Square in New York, so people can see a picture of the sun rising. The sun rises, but the people in Beijing can't see it because of all the junk in the air. And sometimes we can have so much junk in the air, sin in our lives, that the radiance of Christ is blocked from our life. Others don't see Jesus as a centerpiece of our life. He's been camouflaged by the smog of ungodliness, by our old way of thinking and acting. And therefore you and I must clear up the smog. So the view of the sun becomes clear to those around us. How do we do it? We do it by taking sin seriously, confessing our sin immediately, understanding that in, in sinning, we have not only violated God, but we have violated others. And we have shown disrespect for ourselves as well. There are obviously other practices that we can engage in to grow in godliness. But I think if we begin with practicing the spiritual disciplines, engaging in joyful worship and heartfelt worship, and immediately dealing with sin, we will be well on our way to developing this virtue, the virtue of godliness in our lives. 
And so let's turn our attention to a character from the Old Testament who displayed this quality, the quality of godliness. And I would have us consider one scene from the life of Joseph as recorded for us in Genesis chapter 39. Joseph, as you may be aware, was sold by his brothers because of jealousy, sold to some Midianite traders for 20 shekels of silver. These Midianite traders then took Joseph to Egypt and they sold him to a man named Potiphar, who was an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So in other words, he is a high ranking official. In verse two of Genesis 39, we read the Lord was with Joseph and he became successful and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. There are several things that we don't know about Joseph up to this point. We don't know how long Joseph had been in Potiphar's uh, household as a slave before the events of this chapter take place. He may have been there a few days. He may have been there a few months, uh, maybe even a few years. We just don't know. The text doesn't tell us. And we also don't know how this traumatic experience impacted, impacted Joseph. We don't know the adjustments that he had to endure as a slave in a foreign land and in a foreign culture. But there is one thing that we do know. God's blessing is on Joseph's life. And this coupled with his personal integrity and hard work leads to his being promoted to a place of prominence. The text tells us his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Notice that Potiphar saw that God was with Joseph. Joseph earned the right to be respected, the right to be trusted. And as a result, notice what happened from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, The Lord blessed the Egyptians house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was in all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything, but the food he ate. By now God's blessing combined with Joseph's personal integrity have inspired Potiphar's absolute confidence and trust. And along with that has come greater measure of responsibility for Joseph, greater freedom for him, but also with these benefits come a greater measure of vulnerability. While Potiphar is appreciating Joseph's reliable business sense and trustworthy nature, his wife has become increasingly preoccupied with him. And why? Again, the text tells us now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. This then led her to proposition Joseph. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Joseph immediately, but politely refuses. He tries to appeal to her reason first and then to her conscience. The text says, but he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put me, put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. 
How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? However, Potiphar's wife is not moved a bit. She isn't interested in the sanctity of her marriage or the trust between her husband and Joseph. She is only interested in satisfying her lust and nothing else. And so stop and consider the situation Joseph finds himself in. First, it's a difficult dilemma. The very place in which he lived and worked Potiphar's household brought him face to face with Potiphar's wife. Her advances must have flattened, flattered his ego and aroused his powerful sensual temptation as well. And the source of temptation was persistent. She pursued him day after day after day. And this woman pursued Joseph when they were alone, when there wouldn't be any fear of detection. So we find that Joseph found himself in a vulnerable situation. The final test for Joseph came when Potiphar's wife resorted to more than just words to lure him to lie with her. The text says, but one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Joseph did the right thing. But once he got outside, he did not hear any angel singing his praises for saying no to Potiphar's wife. What he heard instead was a scream of a woman, a scream of accusation. We read, then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story saying the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. The scream of accusation hurled him from the heights of Potiphar's overseer to the depths of an obscure jail cell. For we read as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the King's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Although Joseph did the right thing, although he fled the temptation, he was confined to prison. But the question we need to ask is simply this. How was Joseph able to withstand such temptation? How was he able to maintain his integrity, his godliness in that kind of an environment? I think to understand Joseph's resolve, we have to go back to verses eight and nine. Joseph withstood the advancements of Potiphar's wife because he had developed a deep reverence for God and a deep respect for Potiphar. You recall how he said to Potiphar's wife, how can I do this to my master? He has put me in charge of all things in this household. How can I violate his trust and show disrespect by lying with you? And how can I commit this sin against God? Joseph did not want to jeopardize his master's trust or compromise his relationship with God. He lived caring more about what God thought than gratifying his own desires. Therefore an example of godliness. It was because of godliness. He was able to withstand the temptation. In his first epistle to Timothy, 
the apostle Paul challenges us to pursue godliness. And as he challenges us to pursue godliness, he cautions us to avoid, uh, avoid a form of godliness. In other words, Paul is saying that we can give the impression that we are godly when in reality we are not. <clears throat> Richard Toll illustrates what having a form of godliness is like by using the example of the Sucado insect. After living in the ground for anywhere between 13 to 17 years, the Sucado insect will emerge from the ground and they will shed their old skin. Ron told Winter on to write, he said, I grew up in West Texas and there were a lot of Sucado insects. They're not technically locusts, but we call them that during the hot summer days, the loud shrill sound that the males made would fill the air. You would usually see them in the trees. At times you would come across the lifeless shell they had shed. It was just an empty form of the living creature that once had been there. If you put the slightest pressure on that empty form, it would crumble. He goes on to say, that's what I think of when I hear the phrase, a form of godliness. It bears some resemblance to the real thing, but there's no life in it. At the beginning, I said, we cannot confuse godliness with religiosity. We cannot confuse godliness with outward appearances, with substance, or with its outward appearance that has no substance, that has no life and vitality. And so the question you and I are left to answer this morning is this. Are you faithfully going through a form of religion that bears resemblance to the real thing, but in reality is dead and lifeless? Or are you living with a sense of God's presence and a desire motivated by love to be pleasing to him in all things you say, do, and think? It's a challenging question because it causes us to reflect upon the things that we say, do, and think. Are they only appearance, appearances of what is right, of what is godly? Or are they godly acts in themselves? The life of godliness will not come easy. All the courage, all the discipline and persistence you can muster will be needed for taking God seriously. Godliness may not be an easy life, but it is a distinguishable life. Other people will take notice because a godly life reflects the likeness of Jesus. Heavenly Father, again, we ask you to search our hearts and to know our thoughts and our ways and to reveal to us the reality of our thoughts and our ways. Father, this morning, I pray that we would take seriously what we have heard and that we would consider whether we are just living with a form of godliness or if your spirit is truly at work, shaping us and molding us into the godly people that you want us to become. We realize father that we will fall short of your glory. And so we confess our sin to you this morning and we acknowledge our wrongdoing. 
But father, we also express to you our desire to, to live a life of godliness as demonstrated by Joseph to allow you to work in us in such a deep way that we reflect your likeness, that we live with a reality of your presence and live in such a way that brings you honor and glory in a way that is pleasing to you. And so empower us by your spirit to live that life of godliness. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash TBC Swan River. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Temple Baptist Church or search on your favorite podcast app.